The Protectors of the Wood episode series. Episode number 45, The Last Day. And this is the last episode of Book 3, The Ghost Girl. Abby awoke to shadowy, gloomy light leaking in through the windows. A gusting wind made a rushing noise and shook the door and windows. She checked the time and was shocked to see that it was long past dawn, already 10 a.m. The church service and the dreaded voting would soon begin. The room was very chilly. She dressed in a flannel shirt with a hooded sweatshirt and a clean pair of jeans. She drank a cup of hot tea. Around 10.30, she looked out the side window at the street and saw cars already double-parked in front of the church. A woman with a microphone was interviewing people next to a WBCS van while two photographers videoed the scene. The light was very strange, almost like the last glow before nightfall, or the last glow before the end of the world. She wasn't hungry and found it impossible to make any plans or foresee the course of the day. Her only thought was to quietly attend the church service and see what happened. There seemed to be no other choice. After a second cup of hot tea, she tried to make her hair look respectable. When she stepped outside, a blustery wind hit her like a blast from late November. She was thinking, I'm not used to this. It seemed like it would be hot forever. Yesterday's bank of clouds had become a thick, somber blanket covering the sky. It smelled like rain. She expected anything and everything to happen that day, so she put her wallet with all her cash in her pocket. Okay, here goes. She walked out the front gate and in the front door of the church, hoping to blend in. Sliding into the crowd... She immediately received a sheet of paper from Dr. Bear, who was telling all comers, One ballot to a person. One ballot to a person, please. Return them here or at the side door, or in the offering plate. She nodded to Abby and went on with her job without pausing for a moment. Abby saw one of the hostile trustees, Laura somebody, silently distributing ballots on the other side of the double doors. The church was already packed. The back area was so jammed with groups standing and talking that Abby threaded her way down the left aisle toward the side door. There, Fred Peterson and another hostile trustee, Betty somebody, handed out ballots. She saw that Fred had a few jars of pens on a small table, so she grabbed one and filled out her ballot as best she could in the crowd. The paper contained a list of rules and the names of the candidates with a box to check and several lines for name, phone number, address, email address, place of employment, and length of time as a member of the congregation. At the bottom was a line for the voter's signature. Abby handed her ballot to Fred. He took it without a word, hardly noticing her. He was overwhelmed. People kept pressing forward down the aisle pushing the crowd right out in front of the first pew. Abby was thinking, Isn't there a maximum attendance for this church? 
This mob could start trampling people if they panicked. I've never seen half of these people. Half? Well, I haven't seen most of them. This is getting scary. She backed up against the wall with Fred Peterson on one side and the door on the other. Betty, the other trustee, was walking away. Abby saw Tom Winkle handing out ballots in the central aisle. She realized that all the trustees were handing out ballots except Wilma Owens, who did not seem to be present at all. The organ began to play a mournful tune, long, slow, and meditative. Reporters with cameras took notes and photographs, despite Fred's efforts to persuade them to leave. Reverend Tuck appeared near the altar and spoke into a microphone. Uh, Good morning to you all. Uh, Quiet, please. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, hear me? Yes, thank you. Thank you for coming out in this uh, unusual weather. He gazed over the crowd for a moment. People were unable to find seats and were still talking and filling out ballots in the aisles and at the back of the church. Reverend Tuck raised his voice. Uh, Since some of you may be unfamiliar with our church in today's election for trustee, uh, I'll go over our simple rules one more time. Uh, We've placed marked containers at both exits for completed ballots. Please fold yours in half and drop it off there or place it in the offering plate as it comes around. If anybody needs to leave early, uh, feel free to drop off your vote on the way out. Uh, We have people at both exits to answer your questions. Uh, Due to the weather and the time needed for voting, our service today will be very brief. After a hymn and readings from scripture, Tuck announced, I have the honor once again to introduce Bishop Richard Beckett. The bishop, again in full formal attire, with pointed hat and staff, walked across the altar and ascended the spiral stairs to the famous high pulpit made from the trunk of a beech tree. Standing at the top, about eight feet above the congregation, he radiated his unusual calming charisma. Many in the crowd, standing at the back and in the aisles, began to pay attention. People raised cell phones to take pictures. The bishop looked over the throng without speaking. The crowd became silent, enthralled by the vision of the man in ancient costume presiding over the congregation from the height of an ancient tree. His low voice entered the silence and filled the sanctuary. Today, we have heard the famous scripture, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. His eyes roamed over the audience, demanding attention. Perhaps you have wondered how anyone can live through a single day, much less a lifetime, without making judgments about everything, choices, values, actions, and most of all, other people or other groups of people. You have also heard that we are all created equal before God. We come from and return to the great mystery. Yet human life goes on in ways that seem unequal and unfair. And the life of our souls before birth and after death seems no more substantial than a puff of wind. The congregation strained to hear. In a gentle conversational tone, the bishop went on. But whatever judgments we may make about our fellow humans, 
It is important to remember that the entire universe and everything in it lives through the blessing of God. Our judgments and points of view are very limited, temporary things. None of us can see from the point of view of God. So be humble and question yourselves. Be generous toward others. Your judgments may look absolute to you, but they are not God's judgments. We are our own worst enemy. Remember, we are often mistaken and ungrateful, but God never is. The bishop bowed his head. Let us pray. Great mystery beyond thought and the sight of our eyes. May we learn your plan for each one of us and with your help, bring good into this world all the days of our lives. Amen. After a minute of silence, the bishop announced the offering and invited everyone to place their ballots in the trays that began to circulate around the church. Abby realized that he was making the election a part of the church service, perhaps as a strategy to maintain order and ensure the integrity of the voting process. But given the sheer number of people and the emotional tension in the room, Abby felt the potential for conflict, even violence. She scanned the church for friends and allies, but saw only Fred Peterson and Tom Winkle. Ellen and Kayla, Glenda and Tiny, even Phoebe and Jeremy were nowhere to be seen. Becky Scudder was very noticeable, wearing an elegant blue dress and saying hello to friends in the center aisle. The ballots filled tray after tray. The trustees hurried up and back to collect and secure all votes by pouring them into large plastic bags. The quantity of ballots was astonishing. Tom Winkle closed the full and bulging bags by tying the ends and then carried them through a back door to what Abby assumed must be a conference room where they counted the votes. As this process was going on, a roll of thunder shook the church. People looked up in alarm. Soon a much louder crack like an explosion startled the entire congregation. All those near the doors tried to look outside and a man yelled, Hailstones! They're like baseballs! With the doors open, a cold wind swept through the church. Thunder rumbled again. The bishop announced the final hymn and the organ began to play. Votes were still being collected and people were already hurrying for the doors. The majority of the congregation had the nerve to remain standing and sing, but the crowd around the doors grew loud and frantic. Tom Winkle struggled to fill the plastic bags and carry them through the crowded aisles. Finally, the bishop thanked everyone in a very soothing tone, and the service was over. Loud voices broke out. You can't even walk on this stuff. It's like walking on marbles. Wear a hat or stay indoors. Thunder cracked again, and the congregation began to panic. The pelting of hailstones against the stained glass windows sounded like the rifle fire of a battle. Abby squeezed out the side door and saw people with coats over their heads running for their cars. And there was Jeremy with a wool hat pulled down to his eyebrows and his back against the wall, not two feet away. He said, I've got the door. 
Abby could hardly believe her eyes. What does he mean? The hailstones were indeed like marbles, a danger to the eyes and a strong wind. She slid back inside the church and stood quietly, unable to think clearly. Fred Peterson was no longer at the side door. Many of those who stepped outside decided to return, choosing the safety of the church. Don't even try it. The traffic's not moving. I want to find out who won this thing anyway. Abby felt someone grab her shoulder and jerked away. But in a flash, she saw that it was Phoebe. Behind her were Sule and Nico. They formed a little wall around her, standing like bodyguards. They did not try to speak over the waves of sound, but just nodded to Abby with calm confidence. Tears came to her eyes. The trustees collected the last of the ballots and departed through a back staircase behind the altar. The bishop had disappeared. Tuck looked anxiously at the congregation and then climbed the staircase to the high pulpit. His voice came over the loudspeaker. Please, feel free to stay as long as you like. The storm will pass. Please be calm. The, the, the trustees will be counting the votes, and we will announce the results when the trustees are confident that the process is complete. I will be here to offer any help I can. The crowds abandoned their seats and pressed for a view out the doors. Normally, the end of the worship service was followed by the departure of the congregation, but the voting and the weather had created a mob in the sanctuary, afraid or unwilling to leave. Reporters from television and the press were taking advantage of the situation to video the crowd, interview voters, and take hundreds of pictures. A stream of people were returning, complaining about the frozen traffic. Abby heard fantastic words repeated, like magic and revenge. She began to receive menacing looks from people at a distance and noticed groups of muttering strangers pointing her way. Finally, a man yelled at her. Okay, that's enough. You better put a stop to this. There's only so much we can take. Where's Tuck? Abby was yelling into Phoebe's ear. She only shook her head. A woman ran in the side door yelling, We're trapped. We're trapped. Don't even think about leaving. She looked at Abby. Hey, you. What are you standing there for? Go back where you came from. Abby saw the tall, thin form of Milton Morphy moving toward her through the crowd, followed by his short and round ally, Bob Bentley. They began to organize and inflame an ever-increasing flood of people pressing forward. People kept glancing up at Abby and turning back to listen. Bentley, his arm in a white cast and a sling, stood to the side and gave her a long, steady glare, apparently inviting her to a staring contest. Abby pretended she didn't see him. She noticed Becky Scudder and her husband looking her way from the center aisle. They seemed to be paying more attention to the mob than to Abby herself. Becky said something, and they hurried up toward the front exit. How long are we going to take this? Another decade or two? Another 50 years? How long before we put an end to this evil? The Connolly brothers were trailing behind. Abby noticed Mitch shake his head to his older brother. 
They both back out of the crowd, followed by a few of their following. Jerome Peabody noticed them leave, and after another look at the crowd closing in on Abby and Phoebe, and a glance at Sule snapping pictures, and he too disappeared through the dazed groups of people. Well, this is too much for them. This crowd is mostly strangers now. Abby began to plot her escape. What do Phoebe and Jeremy have in mind? A reporter with a camera joined the group, trying to record the frightened and angry talk. Sule, Shannon, and Nico were fanning out to get angles for photos of the mob. Phoebe yelled in Abby's ear, Go! Go! I've got the door! Jeremy will hold it! Get ready! Phoebe opened the door a crack and yelled something to Jeremy. Bentley's voice rose above the chaos. This time we better finish the job! We'll give you one minute to put a stop to this freak storm! You can't play with us any longer! You're a loser anyhow! You and Tucker are out of here! He began to move forward, followed by a whole aisle full of people. Abby began to ease her way to the door, but as soon as she moved, a man shouted, Where is she going? Suddenly a piercing yell came forth from the crowd. Stop her! She's going to Wendy! It's all Wendy's doing! People turned to see Milton Morphy towering above the crowd. Arrest her! His face was contorted with rage and his arm pointed at her. Find out what she knows! There was a frozen moment of shock and astonishment as people stared. The heavy door opened, and Phoebe slid out into the raging wind with Abby on her heels. Phoebe and Jeremy immediately slammed the door behind her. Go! Go! Jeremy was leaning against the door, but obviously could not hold it for long. Phoebe threw her weight into it. Abby ran to Tuck's side door and banged with her fist. Hurry up! Please! Looking back, she saw the door begin to open. Phoebe and Jeremy were giving way, slipping on the icy ground. The enraged crowd spilled outside. Hail with a mix of rain blew relentlessly in their faces. Suddenly, Tuck opened his door and pulled her inside. Lock it! He turned the brass knob and the bolt slid into place. Listen! I have word that Becky Scudder is winning the election by a large margin. Dr. Bear warned me that Laura Palmer is calling for an audit of church finances and possessions, including the treasures locked in our basement room. She already has demanded the key. Abby felt as if she'd been kicked in the stomach. She could hear banging on the door behind her. But don't worry. I knew this was a possibility, so I removed your briefcase and that other item. I hid them in my office. You should take them now to your cottage or anywhere you like. But for your sake, get them out of here. Come! He pulled her by the arm up the stairs and into his office. In one corner behind a few boxes of books, he withdrew the map stick and the briefcase and handed them to Abby. She took them, and without a word ran down the stairs. The briefcase weighed far more than the mapstick. She waited for a few seconds at the door. The banging had stopped. She listened carefully, but could hear only Tuck's steps behind her. He turned the knob and opened it. 
The ferocious storm had increased over the past few minutes. The crowd had retreated indoors. Sule, Phoebe, and Jeremy remained outside near the door, hugging the wall to protect themselves. They waved to Abby, and Nico gave her a thumbs-up sign. Thank you, God. Someone's out here to protect me. Deep in the back of her mind, Abby had been anticipating this moment for a few days. She had a plan ready. Running to the tool shed, she grabbed a few pieces of twine and tied the briefcase to the rack over the back wheel of her bike. Then she used the twine to make a sling, holding the map stick diagonally across her back. The real danger, she knew, would be the slippery surface of the street. But she had to risk that. Her first idea was to go through the wild area to the back door, but if a stalker was on duty there, she would be alone and helpless. The front gate would put her immediately on Bridge Avenue, where the traffic was not moving. No one could follow her unless they too had a bike or were a long-distance sprinter. So she rode toward the front gate, wishing she had goggles. Jeremy met her and ran alongside. It was almost impossible to see. She raised her hood. Rain and hail began to soak her jacket, but she hardly felt it. Her adrenaline had given her all the courage and strength she needed. Her mind was clear. Phoebe, Sule, and Nico were standing like soldiers, guarding the gate. Sule raised her camera. Nico yelled, Go! Go! Faster! Faster! Behind her, voices were shouting, There she is! Get after her! Jeremy turned back to stand in the gate. Abby had to jump on her pursuers, but now worried about stalkers watching the windows of the Middletown Standard. And so she dared to put on speed, despite the icy surface, and she cycled down the sidewalk into the street. The wheels slipped on the melting hail and snow. It was almost impossible to control the bike. She felt sure the brakes would send her into a skid. But if she took it slow, someone would catch her. Very few pedestrians were out braving the storm. No one seemed interested in Abby. The traffic was just creeping along every once in a while. She crossed to the other side in front of Scudder's store. It was like biking on ice. But to her surprise, her balance improved and she had the strange sensation that the bike was steering itself. Suddenly she heard someone yell, Look, it's her! She risked putting on more speed until she was going faster than anyone could run in that weather. To her amazement, she felt more secure and balanced the faster she went. The bike might have been an inch off the ground and gliding through the air. She made blind choices, weaving in and out of cars, but encountered no stray pedestrians or moving vehicles. A feeling of exhilaration overwhelmed her, a burst of indescribable happiness. The bike was choosing its route, as if the driver could see the street from above. No one could catch her. At Main Street, a tow truck was making ready to haul a damaged car away from the intersection at Bridge Avenue. The nearby cars sat with engines idling. 
Abby raced through the stalled traffic and in seconds took a wide right turn on the main street. She felt sure the bike would spin out as she leaned far to the right at high speed, but her balance was perfect. The tires somehow never slipped. She put on more speed as she rode up Main Street, planning to enter the forest near Glenda's house. Without stopping or looking around, she flew along and turned left on Oak Knoll Lane. The wind and hail were tapering off. In a moment, she entered the forest on a path she knew well and stopped for a second, looking back over the field. No one was there. Abby could not avoid the thought that something impossible had happened. There was no way she could ride a bike like that in this weather. It had felt as if she were flying, but holding the road at the same time. The bike seemed to make its own decisions. It was more than strange. She stood there, dazed for a few minutes. It's not just my imagination. Her attention came back to the moment. No one had appeared to be following her. Nothing moved on the street. She untied the briefcase and stashed her bike in a thicket of mountain laurel. She took another look back and was horrified to see George jogging down Main Street and looking over the field. He stopped and examined the ground where Abby had turned off onto Oak Knoll Lane. He looked back and then quickly jogged on, continuing past Penny's house to the far side of the field. A car caught up with him, and the driver stopped and talked to him through an open window. Thoughts flashed through her mind. Is he following me? What could he be doing? Completely unable to understand the situation or take time to think about it, she picked up the mapstick and the briefcase and plunged deep into the forest. Thanks for listening. That's the end of book three, The Ghost Girl. To hear all the episodes, please go to our website, Protectors of the Wood. Dot com. Sometimes I'm walking on rainbows Sometimes I'm locked underground But if I hear you say it's all okay There's nothing compares to that sound I'm lost but now I'm about a lot of things I guess I try and I try just to do my best but if it's not right with you there's nothing I can do I'm lost before I begin God help the shape I'm in God help the shape that I'm in shape that I'm in Just come back to me I'll be yours for free I'll do all the good I can do It's just that I need you Sometimes I'm stumbling through my day And there's no light upon 
There's nothing I can see It's dark as can be Hold my hand and see me through I'm lost if I don't have you God help the shape that I'm in God help the shape that I'm in Just come back to me I'll be yours for free I'll do all the good I can do It's just that I need you It's just that I